think it depends on how you look at trauma because I think being highly sensitive or intense and experiencing the world more intensely than others, I think that you can find things traumatizing that might not be traumatizing for other people as well. Mm. Yeah, Yeah. you have a more sensitive system. You see more, you hear more, and you're hurt by things that are not hurtful Mm -hmm. to others. And that in itself creates quite a lot of shame because why am I so sensitive? Why am I Mm -hmm. feeling so much pain when others don't? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Eggshell Transformations, a podcast for intense people. My name is Imi, and I'm here with you on a journey. Today, we talk to Aurora Holtzman. She came on my radar as one of the very few people out there who talks about intensity. In fact, she has a podcast called Embracing Intensity. After years of feeling too much, Aurora finally realized that intensity in the form of excitability is the source of her greatest power. Now, instead of beating herself up about not measuring up to her self-imposed standards, she is on a mission to help outside-the-box thinkers befriend their brains and use their fire. In this conversation, she shared her journey, what she has learned through interviewing intense people, and a bunch of useful resources. Now to Aurora. Hello, Aurora. Welcome to Eggshell Transformations. Thank you for agreeing to be here. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I'm excited to see another podcast in this space. Absolutely. We are very new. (laughs) But I have been aware of you and your work for a very long time because there are very few people in this space who talk about intensity. And your podcast is called Embracing Intensity. Well, I ask most of my guests this question, but I feel for you, this is a very obvious one. Would you consider yourself an emotionally intense person? (laughs) <laughs> well, obviously, that, that's the name of my podcast. But what's funny about it is that I feel like people don't always see me that way, necessarily, because I think um, I tend to be uh, a pretty calming person to other people. And so my energy calms other people, not necessarily my family, but that's a whole... <laughs> <laughs> a whole different thing. But, but, you know, I think that's, sometimes I will have people ask me, so, you know, uh, about that, because they don't think I seem like a particularly intense person. But the emotional intensity is definitely um, there internally, especially um, as I was moving up into adulthood, and then also um, coming on to my own after my divorce is really when I started to reconnect with that. Mm. Are you, were you or are you just emotionally intense or are you intense all round? <laughs> I would say if you look at the five areas of intensity for um, excitabilities, overexcitabilities, whatever you want to call it, I would probably be all of them except not so much the uh, imaginative one because I don't really visualize things very well, but definitely intellectual. Uh, the physical is more kind of in a restless state but I for me it's more wired but tired kind of feeling so I get I have chronic fatigue but when you look at my hormones I actually have the um, those high energy hormones it's just that it, it it's a it's like this constant balancing act in my system <laughs> right well for those of us who are not familiar with the theory or what overexcitabilities is do you mind enlightening us a little more 
Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. So, uh, uh, Dabrowski, Casimir, Casimir's Dabrowski. Thank well you. done for pronouncing his name. <laughs> I don't dare trying. Yeah. So he was a Polish, I think, psycholo- psychologist, yeah. and he, uh, his biggest theory is the theory of positive disintegration, which can be very complicated, but very, but essentially says that you have to fall apart before you can come together into a more integrated whole. Uh, but he talked about what he called overexcitabilities, super stimulabilities. Uh, he had a variety of different names. And since it got lost in translation, I personally use excitability on its own because I think overexcitability implies too much. Yes. And so I use just highly excitable um, yeah, instead because really I don't necessarily think that it's too much. I think it depends on your context, of course. I very much agree. I've always been a little allergic to the word over. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. So the five areas are intellectual, which I think a lot of um, gifted and, and outside the box thinkers have that area where your mind's just constantly going and overanalyzing. The physical is more known, more obvious in those who are kind of hyperactive or people who are physically um, really gifted in, in sports, or they, they just have this need to move. Um, And because it's one of its definitions is excess energy. Mm -hmm. I was hesitant to see myself that way early on, but I realized that um, I do, I have a constant need for, I I have a restlessness um, that, that motion, I can't just stand in one place for long. but for me, it, it like I said, it, it manifests as kind of that wired but tired. So I also do have chronic fatigue. Um, and then the no, Im- imagine. Actually, thank that- you. Sorry, actually, thank you for sharing that because I am the same, and I've never resonated. I've resonated with all the other four, but not the fifth mm-hmm. one, um, because I never feel I had a lot of energy. And like you, I have chronic mm-hmm. fatigue-like symptoms. I had an underactive thyroid. But mm-hmm. the way you put it. Yeah, I can't sit still and I can't stand still. And I yeah. need to be doing something. Mm. Yeah. Well, and when I uh, I did an adrenal testing like five years ago, and it was over the summer, so it's not my regular schedule. But the, the two things they found is that I had the cortisol levels would go up through the day naturally, but then they would stay up late at night when they're not supposed to, which makes it hard to fall asleep. And then I had uh, excess glutamate, which is a stimulating hormone and not enough, uh, what was it, GABA or something? Mm. I I could be wrong on that. Anyway, it was was a calming one I didn't have enough of. And so that that's kind of the seeing the chemistry of it is really what made me realize like, oh, actually, I do have that that psychomotor uh, excitability, it just manifests and it, <laughs> it makes me tired because I can't sleep well. I, you know, yeah. Yeah. So. I have lifelong insomnia. Mm-hmm. And even when I was mm-hmm. a little child, it's three o'clock, four o'clock and I just can't, couldn't go to sleep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's um, relieving to know I'm not the only one. Yeah. Yeah. And my insomnia, it, it hasn't been as bad. Uh, the last few years. I have it very occasionally now, but mm-hmm. I have had it in the past more. And, um, but it is hard for me to get myself to sleep. <laughs> yeah. And then of course, the final two uh, are the things we think of when we think of highly sensitive people. So emotional intensity and physical sensory uh, intensity. Yeah. 
Thank you. That's a very thorough definition. <laughs> so, what was it like for you growing up? Did the people around you understood? Understand? Yeah. Yeah,、uh, I was very lucky in that I had a family that understood. At least my core family, my both my parents and my sister are all kind of intense people, so <laughs> we all kind of got each other. It's a little, it was a little chaotic, but it was we had that that solid basis of love and understanding on that.、Um, school was difficult. I definitely have. Some school trauma based on the fact that I was in a very rigid. It was a Spanish immersion program, and we lived in San Diego, so、um, a lot of there was a lot of need for that. But they were very authoritarian in their approach to school, and so that's going to work, isn't it, for any、yes. non-conforming child? <laughs> so, and I was super young. Because in California the cutoff isn't till December first, and I was late November, so I was four when I started kindergarten, and most of the kids were already five, and so they tried to hold me back a year and and said I was quote immature for my age, but I was actually just immature for my grade. But、um, I was because I talked too much and asked too many questions, <laughs> and and so and then I didn't really speak. Uh, read in sp- English until third grade, and so when it came to the gifted testing, I didn't actually pass a gifted test till till、uh, fifth grade. And then at that point, they told my parents they needed to get me out of that school and into a full time gifted program. So I scored high enough that they felt like I needed a special program outside of that school I was in. But it didn't. It wasn't until fifth grade. I mean, most people. Hear that and look at, at look at you, and they'll go, "Oh, she's gifted. She was in gifted a gifted program. She had it all."、Um, they probably don't see what's behind and what's beneath the surface. That a gifted person can also have imposter syndrome, can also feel like a misfit on their inside, can also be bullied. Have you ever rejected your intensity? Uh, yeah, definitely. When I in my last marriage,、uh, which was about a little over, well, we were together a little over ten years.、Um, it's it's kind of funny because we were drawn together in the beginning in high school when one of our mutual friends said, "Oh, he's weird. He's even weirder than you," and and so I was drawn to him for that. But then somehow in that young adulthood, had gotten this idea in his head that that it was. Important to conform and fit in, and and started really toning down, and and so as I moved into that relationship, I saw it as maturity, right? I was I was maturing because I was no longer so big and and too much and and that sort of thing. So you have interviewed and came to coach a lot of intense people. What have you、mm-hmm. learned through this experience? Well, I think that there's a lot of universal themes.、Um, you know, you ask the question about the childhood experience, and that's something that I ask about a lot too. And、um, what, for one, almost everybody that I've interviewed has come through a point in their life where they have tried to tone themselves down, or they tune themselves out physically, like if they're having chronic pain or they're highly sensitive.、Um, and so, there are only a handful of people that I interviewed who never found themselves able to tone themselves down in any way. And it was—it wasn't so much of choice. It was just I'm just too big. I just <laughs> there was that wasn't really an option for me.、Um, and so they just made peace with who they were.、Uh, and uh, but it—I think there. 
almost everyone either had a point in time where they toned themselves down or found themselves in a place where maybe they wished they could. (laughs) Um, But of course, but by the time I interviewed and connected with them, they were had reconnected with that part of themselves and that, and were using it in some positive way. How many of the people that you talk to have some kind of trauma in their lives? I think there's probably more than, than even Mm. shared on the podcast, but I also, I think it depends on how you look at trauma because I think being highly sensitive or intense and experiencing the world more intensely than others. I think that, you can find things traumatizing that might not be traumatizing for other people as well. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. You have a more sensitive system. You see more, you hear more and you're hurt by things that are not hurtful Mm -hmm. to others. And that in itself creates quite a lot of shame because why am I so sensitive? Why am I Mm -hmm. feeling so much pain when others don't? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. For you yourself, what would be some of the emotions or maybe one emotion that you battle with the most for me it's probably um i don't know if it would be i don't i guess it would come under the shame category i think about have you heard you heard of the term rejection sensitive dysphoria um it's something that comes up with especially people with adhd where they just they perceive rejection really quickly and they react to it Um, And so they're very sensitive to rejection or perceived rejection. And for me, it's around anything to do with me not being responsible in some way. So if someone, especially when it comes to things like cleaning around the house or um, that sort of thing. So if I feel like someone, and and part of that too, was being in a relationship with someone who was quite critical for many years (laughs) and perceiving criticism Mm -hmm. and then being told that it wasn't that my perception wasn't accurate. And then finding out after 10 years that my perception actually was accurate. He was just, he was just not (laughs) open about it. (laughs) So that, I think that added to that. So now my perceived rejection, um, I, I saw myself as being oversensitive at the time. And then I realized later it was actually accurate. And so now sorting through that perceived rejection versus what's accurate, um, Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you sometimes feel like running circles and getting nowhere? Maybe you want your life to run toward achieving something more significant, but you are not quite sure how or where to start. If it sounds like you, you should definitely check out the Neat Lifestyle podcast. We talk about all aspects of getting organized to build the lifestyle you desire so that you can get started and not feel so confused or alone. Questions like, how do I organize life for success? How do I organize time, home, finances, and projects? All that and more we cover in the show. So if that sounds like something you would be interested in, click on the show notes and follow the Neat Lifestyle podcast today. What do you think is a common wound for people with ADHD, especially the undiagnosed ones or the ones who only figure it out quite late in life? Mm-hmm. Well, I think tied to that, rejection sensitive dysphoria thing is is that self that perception of being I think well it also connects with the gifted part too but being being both too much and not enough at the same time um and so that concern how is someone too much and not enough can you say a bit more 
Yeah. So I think in the too much, so if I gave myself as an example, the too much would be maybe, um, maybe I talk too much or um, what, especially in social settings, I found myself at a networking event after a conference and I felt like I was exhausted and I just felt like I had to be on. And, and I just, um, as I was talking to people, I just, I couldn't, I felt like I had to be, have this constant filter around me not to say too much or not to you know not just to be socially appropriate and it's not it's and it's funny because naturally at just a relaxed setting I do make friends I do connect well but when I'm in those settings where it's like a networking type thing where you're supposed to be meeting people for business purposes or connections or whatever I have this extra filter on that's like oh don't say anything stupid don't don't say too much do it and and the comparison after I was going to a friend's birthday party Mm. and even though I was already tired I it was a day after school got out I was exhausted um there was I didn't sleep all that week and I was just I so looked forward to that just going and sitting down and talking with friends that I've known for 10 years and just being just just being, you know, where you can just relax and not have to be on or worry about saying the wrong thing or that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, for me, the too muchness would be kind of the talking too much and not enough is, is um, for me, not necessarily taking on the responsibilities that, you know, I forget appointments or I, or forget to schedule appointments or <laughs> that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um life adulting duties. (laughs) Adult ADHD awareness has only just started to emerge in the UK. And I think probably in the US, in some parts of the US, it's much better in some parts not. If Mm -hmm. someone suspects that they have ADHD as an adult and they don't have any resources around them, what would you suggest Mm -hmm. them do? Well, I think there's some great, uh, amazing, both podcasts and video YouTube. There's a couple, um, let's see, there's a couple, one was on my podcast uh, called C and ADHD. Her name's Jenny Friedman. Um, and she has a book, Jenny Friedman, I forget the name. Oh, I think it's called ADHD, a different hard drive. And it's really short. And as I read it, I was like, I, I was like, this is describing my brain. Exactly. The only thing I think that doesn't describe my brain is that I do, I do think more before I act sometimes um, because I also have that anxious side. (laughs) Sometimes I get overthink, but uh, everything else, the time being unaware of time around me and that sort of thing is is so accurate. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's another podcast called ADHD rewired by um, uh, Eric Tivers, who I was on his podcast someday. I need to have him on mine. (laughs) And, um, there is also a YouTube channel called, um, what is it? Uh, how to ADHD. And she's a young woman, uh, Jessica McCabe. She's super enthusiastic and it's very, a very popular YouTube channel. My kid loves it too. Um, she keeps them short and, and talks about, um, different concepts. And then um, there's a ADHD Essentials is more fo- focused on kids and families, but he has a lot of episodes um, and he was on my podcast, mm-hmm. Brendan Mann. Um, and he also talks about anxiety as well as ADHD. And he, he has a concept called the wall of awful. Uh, and he, there's a short video on, on C and ADHD 
no, sorry, how to ADHD, the YouTube channel. And there's a two-part series on the wall of awful. And he talks about his concept. And it's basically how over the years we build up this wall of, of failure experiences, and then it becomes difficult to navigate. Mm. A wall of failure. Oh, I see. So it's accumulated trauma of, of the shame and the failure and it becomes mm-hmm. harder and harder and thicker and thicker. Yes, exactly. Mm. Yeah. How do people get through that? It's a very complex <laughs> mm-hmm. question, but where should we start, do you think? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think I can talk about from my, what I, the people that I've worked with and what I um, have had most success with. And I think there's a time f- certainly where therapy is definitely um, a major positive thing for that. And, and so because I think coaching comes at a point when you've already kind of started getting the ball rolling and coaching helps you kind of develop tools and keep the ball rolling. And so I think if there's a lot of trauma to process and, and that sort of thing, I think that's a a therapy area and that's not necessarily my area. I'm definitely not a therapist, but when it comes to building your toolbox of skills, like how um, I look at a couple things. One is, Uh, looking at your energy balance. And so everything we do can either drain us or energize us. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's as simple as how we look at it. Because if we look at it as something that's a duty that we have to do, then it might be draining. But um, for example, how how food right now for me, I, I got out of my positive food practices that I'd been doing for a long time. And so now getting back to that point feels almost like a duty. And so then it's hard for me to get that motivation. But if I remember back at the time when I was eating really well and I was feeling much better and I had more energy, it was motivating because I saw the positive Mm -hmm. difference that it made. And I could choose to do that because um, it made me feel good. Um, And so I think think the same thing with the activities that we do in our life is when we look at what we're choosing to do because we want to do them versus doing things because we feel like we have to, um, which becomes draining. And so looking at that, and I think the other biggest thing I look at is finding your strengths. And so really recognizing that with all of our weaknesses comes strengths. And if we can find those strengths and use them, and find structures, whether it's routines, um, external structures. I, I like to say that I have to have external structures in place because I have almost no internal <laughs> structure. Uh-huh. My brain's just like, Bleh! yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like all over the place. Yeah. And so when people see me at my day job, they'll look at me and say, oh my gosh, you are so organized. And I will say that's because I have to be, because I can't get anything done if I am not. It's a whole different ballgame when you're in a self-employed kind of situation, though, because there's so many balls that it's hard to figure out how to organize and structure it. And so I'm still figuring that out. Yeah, my best friend is an ADHD, ADHD coach and she's mm. self-employed and I'm repeatedly mm-hmm. re- impressed with how much structure she could put in place to keep herself mm-hmm. on track. What is your definition of resilience? 
the ability to bounce back from things. Um, what is it? Silver Huang uh, did a talk on resilience earlier this this year, and she talked about how we, we don't want to simply bounce back. We want to bounce forward. <laughs> um, and I really liked that. Um, I think being able to use our adversities and transform them into something more positive. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, I have final two questions for you. Can you please share with share with us one book that has changed your life? Mm, let's see. So many, of course. <laughs> um, uh, I was just thinking about um, recently. I don't know if necessarily changed my life, but really changed my outlook on things. The the power of different, the link between disorder and genius, ah. um, Gail. And I feel like where it, it just sort of reinforced my existing belief, which is that um, all things that we see as necessarily disorder also has a positive side. And what I liked about her approach to it is that she wasn't idealizing it. She wasn't saying like, Oh, look, you have ADHD. It's a, it's a gift. It's a superpower. It's, you know, that's, that's a touchy subject with a lot of people who have ADHD and are not, able to function Mm. super well in their adult life, um, they, it's hard to see it as a superpower or, you know, that's, or a gift in any way. Um, same with, you know, if you have emotional, if you're feel like you're, um, really controlled by your intense emotions and you're not able to channel them, um, it doesn't feel like a gift, but what I, appreciate about her book is that she looks at not just the positives of each of these categories, but also the challenges. And so I think she has a very realistic view of the fact that we have both strengths and challenges and it's not to idealize it, but it's also before we can, we can overcome our challenges. We have to be able to see our positive strengths good book and good Mm -hmm. reminder (laughs) finally can you share with us one quote or a poem or a song Mm. um to people who are intense sensitive misunderstood lonely the quote that came to mind was keeping our cool is freezing our aliveness (laughs) and i thought that was yeah very relevant (laughs) Thank you so much, Aurora, for being here. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your wisdom, your experience, your personal experience, your professional experience, and where you are in life. Really appreciate it. Thank you. I'm excited to, to listen to your podcast. Hey, thank you so much for tuning in. For more, please head to eggshelltherapy.com. There you will find more stories, articles, and resources for people just like me and you. Bye now. Putting one foot in front of the other Moving forwards, never looking back Just one more foot in front of all those countless others And we're there, imagine